I think most boards have two choices when the company is not doing well, which is do you optimize for the short term or for the long term? In the short term, if you just want to get more revenue out of this business and get it back on its legs, probably you're better off to get a professional sales or marketing oriented CEO who has done this many times before. They'll come in, they'll figure out how to get the numbers to look better and they'll optimize it. And that's actually probably great for the short term. But if you actually want to completely change the world, you probably need the visionary person who came up with the technology. They kind of have this vision and they understand what they want to kind of do long-term. Those are the people you want if you want to bet on the long-term. So Ben bet long-term. Then the question, of course, is are we going to survive in the short-term, which we luckily did. And I learned on the job. I don't know how many times I heard this phrase, you know, first-time CEO. It was kind of like implicit. You don't know what you're doing. This is your first time. It's okay. You know, so that gave me another chip on my shoulder, which is great. So, you know, you had more to prove. here with the one and only CEO and founder of Breakline Education, Bethany Coates. Kenny, thank you for having me with you today. Well, welcome everybody to another wonderful episode of the Breakline Arena. Before we dive into some great content, we would love to share one of the fabulous reviews that we received on the podcast. This review is titled, Wow, Incredible Access, and it is brought to us by Ariana the Iguana. Ariana says, the Breakline Arena offers incredible access to leaders, shakers, and rock stars of all walks of life. What is particularly special about the arena is the intimacy and worth that these discussions are conducted with, fostered by Breakline's amazing host. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. There's something here for everyone in every conversation. Highly encouraged. Ariana the Iguana, thank you so much for leaving us a five-star review. If you want to have your review read on the podcast, please drop an Apple podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. Helps us get the word out there. Now, on that note, Bethany, who do we have the chance to hear from today? We were so lucky to be able to feature Ali Godzi, the CEO and co-founder of Databricks. And Databricks helps companies that we wouldn't traditionally think of as tech companies, and they help them leverage AI to become disruptors in their respective fields. And it was just a wonderful opportunity to hear about Ali's life, the trajectory of his career, his experience, as as a member of the faculty at berkeley and then Mm. of course his journey as an entrepreneur building one of the most interesting and fastest growing companies in silicon valley so what i particularly loved about this conversation was to your point alice coming from an academic background and i really loved how he shared his experience surrounding how he really leveraged those experiences to build databricks as a company You know, a lot of times I think when we think about academia, sometimes, you know, there is this interesting interplay between innovation and creating revenue and growing a business. And the way that he laid that out and how that actually was a huge element in the formula of success for Databricks, I really love that portion of the story. And also just seeing his journey as a CEO and lessons learned in growing the business. So... This is absolutely a wonderful ride for uh, for our listeners to be a part of. 
Um, they are a rocket ship of a company. <laughs> There's a part in the conversation where he talks about raising a billion dollars with a B. Um, and so for all of And it could have been two billion. And it could have <laughs> He had to cut it off at a billion. And I think to your point, you know, his journey to becoming a CEO, he's a first time CEO. This is his first at-bat as CEO. And Ben Horowitz, the co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, said he is the top performing CEO across hundreds of their portfolio companies. So it was, he's a wealth of information, such an interesting person. So Bethany, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. What were your major takeaways from this conversation with Ali? Well, there's so many, and I agree with the points that you raised. One of the things that I was thinking about is this is a person who takes big mm. bets, both in his personal life and in his professional life. Ali's, Ali um, was born in Iran, and his family fled Iran at the onset of the revolution. They took a big bet you know, to mm -hmm. create a new mm -hmm. life, and then they took another bet to settle in Sweden and make that home. Ali took another big bet by coming over to the United States, joining the faculty at Berkeley. And then after this kind of very dynamic life with lots and lots of personal risk that, that they had transcended together, he decided to leave the safety of Berkeley to start this company. And I'm just so inspired by his bravery, his courage, you know, the, the, the chance that he's willing to take on himself and his team to pursue this dream of building Databricks. Mm, I, I love that point. And I think what's so cool about some of the CEOs that we've we've had a chance to host within our community is that is such a powerful theme in terms of the immigrant story. And to listen yes. to Ali share his personal journey and how that's impacted his decision-making, I thought that was a salient point. So absolutely loved it. I think this is gonna be a tremendous conversation. And I don't know about you, Bethany Coates, but do you think we should dive on in and give the listeners what they came here for? I think we should head on over there, Kenny Vaughn. All right, we'll see y'all in the arena. See you then. Allie, welcome. We're so delighted to have you here today with the Breakline community. We're so glad that you were able to make time with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited about this. You bet, Ali. And I want to jump right in. There's so much to cover in your story and in your journey to CEO of Databricks. And I actually want to kind of roll it back and talk first about your childhood. You um, were born in Iran during the revolution, which ended up being a formative experience for you and your family. And then you ended up leaving as a refugee and growing up in Sweden. Can you talk to us about how that impacted your life? Yeah, happy to. Um, you know, it uh, it was sort of going from sort of uh, I, I wasn't aware I was not aware of what was going on in Iran at the time as a kid. You know, being three four years old. But we had a really you know great upbringing. Family was doing really well. I was unaware of all the things going around me. So things were fantastic. I think I was going to a private school, you know, being showered by love. And then suddenly, you know, we have to overnight, 24 hours, just leave the country. And we're going to this, you know, new country. We don't know really where we're going to end up. We don't speak the language. We ended up staying with the family that we knew for like a day. And then they actually kicked us out and said, hey, we don't want you in our house here. So then we ended up moving around in a bunch of dorms. So sort of student dorms, one room, and then shared kitchen, but it's actually a family of four and they're like, you know, parents are in the forties and, you know, two kids. So, you know, we ended up getting 
kicked out of these. So moved around a bunch. And it took a while before kind of my parents realized that we we're probably going to settle in, in Sweden because they were thinking, you know, this is just temporary. We're going to go back. So as a kid, you ended up kind of being moved around between lots of different environments, different schools, different neighborhoods, different countries, different cultures. And, you know, and then this continued sort of while growing up. So, uh, so what happened was basically I got the privilege to see lots of different neighborhoods, people's cultures, views of the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was tough at the time growing up. But now in hindsight, when I look back, I learned so much from interacting with uh, you know, people that basically have different value systems, you know, I mean, to be completely blunt with you, like you grew up in one neighborhood, it's all about, you know, fist fights in the schoolyard. And then later on, you go to a school where they're all like, you know, uh, it's all about who does best in the math class, right? And so on. And being moving between these, in hindsight, for me has been extremely helpful seeing those perspectives and that, you know, how important these different cultural elements are. That's been very valuable. Ali, we were talking in, in sort of our prep session before we opened it up to the Breakline community about a pattern that, that our team has seen with immigrants and first-generation American citizens starting and leading some of the most interesting companies in the world. Just in our speaker series recently, I've interviewed Cal Patel, the CEO of Bright Insight, Nima Gamsari, CEO of Blend, Josh Reeves, CEO of Gusto, all who fall into that category. What do you think is behind that? Have you seen the same thing? And, and if so, what is it that, that is attracting this, this marriage of, of immigrants and first-gen American citizens toward leadership and founding of these amazing companies? Yeah, I think it's actually pretty natural. And, you know, if you actually talk to a lot of those folks and you ask about their backgrounds, you know, they'll share a lot of similarities with my background, which is uh, they didn't come from amazingly sort of rich, you know, background where everything was taken care of, right? So in some sense, they have a chip on their shoulder and they have something to prove to the world. And I think that's actually helpful because that makes them work harder, you know? So I actually look for that in employees. I look for people that have a chip on their shoulder, that they have something they want to prove to the world. I think that's really, really great. If you're just complacent and you think like things are pretty good, life is pretty good, the world is pretty good, it's pretty fair, I've been taken care of, everything's been fine, and you have nothing to prove, you're probably not going to change the world in a revolutionary way, which is fine, but I think they all have that in common. The other thing I think they have in common is if, if they actually had to change countries, you know, and I'm not saying that you have to have had that, otherwise, you know, you're not a good person. I'm just saying if they had to go through that, they probably had to take a lot of risk. They either took a lot of risks, like my parents, in the wherever they were living so that they had to like leave the country so they were already risk takers from that moment or they immigrated for economic reasons right they said hey you know we can we will have a better life in this other country which is a huge risk to take right you're like switching language culture everything midway through life that's a huge risk taking uh moment uh and i think that kind of you know you pass that on to your kids so they become risk takers too so i think immigrants in general are more risk taking and I think these, the combination of these two uh, is what you're finding in a lot of these kind of CEOs or leaders out there that uh, we find now in these companies. Uh, they're all sort of first generation, you know, they, they were maybe middle class or lower middle class and, you know, they, and they have a lot to prove. And they're honestly very, very hardworking. When you get to meet them, you see, wow, these people are working their butts off. And regardless of how much money they made or where they are in their lives, they, you know, they kind of still have this, this chip on their shoulder. So your family moves to Sweden, you're growing up in these very modest circumstances, and in about second grade, 
your parents gave, gave you a used Commodore 64. And I think it was actually broken when they gave it to you, but it started this lifelong love of software engineering and, and tech in general. Will you talk a little bit about, about that, that sort of like dawn of your realization of, of love for software engineering and tech? Yeah, I actually think it was special times those years. And I, unfortunately, I don't know how much that happens today, but you know, those years, you know, for, so first of all, I was broken, so I couldn't use it for gaming. So I basically had a computer, all you could do on it basically was if you wanted to do programming. Uh, so you couldn't use it for games. So that's one. So I was lucky that the tape recorder was broken and my parents didn't want to fix it. They didn't want to you know, spend any money on it. And I started opening this manual. We had a basic manual and started figuring out, wow, you could actually, you could potentially eventually make your own game. And that to me was so cool. Like these games that everybody's playing, I could be the person that actually creates one myself. So I was very excited about that. I was far away initially, right? But so you start writing code and it's, you know, you get kind of sucked into this world. And one thing that was good, I think in the eighties when I was doing that was that software wasn't super impressive in the eighties, if you remember. Games were not super impressive. These days you need, you know, a hundred million dollar production to, you know, with artists and, you know, musicians to create a game. But back then you didn't need to. So you could actually, do quite a bit of damage as a, you know, as a teenager uh, coding. So, so just spent all my day 24 seven doing that and just learning more and more, everything I could learn, get books, you know, at that time, no internet. So it's like all going to libraries, trying to find the books. You don't want to pay for them, you know? So you go to different libraries, figure out, you take them home and, you know, and then the code in the, in the books, you type them in. So I got really good at typing fast. I actually won a speed contest, you know, when I was like younger because I was typing in from the, cause you can't, there's no, you know, you type it in from what you see in the book. So that's kind of how my journey started. And, you know, also with the background that I had, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like a safe haven where you're, you know, escaping the world and you're just getting sucked into this kind of, you know, computer black box that you can live in a sort of alternative world if you want and do your own things and dream away in that. So that, you know, I was just completely in love with computers because of that. And I think that it could be the same today, you know, yes, maybe hundred million dollar productions for games, but there are games for phones that are pretty simplistic and so on. So I think it's great if people that get into it earlier, there's definitely an element of the, you know, 10,000 hour rule. I certainly had 10,000 hours of practice behind me before I even went to college. Right. So the whole outlier thing, you know, it's, you know, if, if, if you get into it early, it helps a lot. So I want to, I want to kind of now take us up to sort of college and graduate school. You, you ultimately went all the way through school in Sweden. You earned a PhD in computer science, and then you had an opportunity to move and, and to teach at Berkeley. And, um, and I love one of these quotes that, that I came across. You said um, you, you started working with a group of colleagues and, and co-authored Apache Spark. And you said, we were a bunch of Berkeley hippies and we just wanted to change the world. Can you talk to us about that period where you were just inventing something for the love of inventing it? And, and why, like what drew you to that particular challenge? Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, Berkeley is a special place. I think it's not just the 60s protests, which then, you know, the free speech movement started in, in United States, kind of in Berkeley, right? And a lot of other movements started in Berkeley. I think the spirit of the city and the university there, it's kind of like, hey, the rules don't matter. Nothing matters. You can change everything. Okay. Like we're here to change things. Uh, and who cares if this is how everyone always did things, or if this is the norm, who, who, who you know, who cares about that? We're going to, we're here to change it up. So I think that's, it, it does lead to a lot of think outside the box. Anything goes 
also quite risk-taking kind of attitude, at least intellectually uh, in that city. So that definitely colored uh, me when I went there and I sort of realized, wow, they really have a, you can do it attitude. I didn't, I found that less when I was in Europe, growing up in Europe, Europe, you know, old institutions, like here's how we do things. Okay, we've been doing things here for thousands of years. This is, these are the rules. When this university was formed like long, long, long time ago, these are the principles and here's how we do things and you put on this clothes. And, but Berkeley was kind of like, hey, it's like the hippies, they can do anything, you can change things. My favorite uh, research, this is a detour, there's a group that did research on once we've colonized all the other planets, then we need to communicate between the planets and internet will not be good enough for that. So we have to invent a new type of internet for interplanetary communication. And it's, this research is called Delay Tolerant Networks, DTN. This is actually research that Berkeley did. You know, it tells you a little bit about how they think in that city, right? It's like, yeah, of course, we'll take over the planets, but then how do we communicate between them? That's a huge problem. Humanity has to attack that now. So, um, uh, so that led to kind of us thinking outside the box. So our thinking then was, okay, we just had hit this thing that was called Moore's Wall, which is they couldn't make computers any faster. Happened in the early 2000s. I don't know if, if you bought a laptop, in fact, every laptop you've bought for the last 10, 15 years is roughly the same clock speed, about three gigahertz. Whereas 10, 20 years before that, it kept doubling in speed every 18 months. That stopped in the middle of 2000s. So at Berkeley, we kind of thought of it as like, wow, basically the old computer is dead. There's gonna be a new computer. The new computer is the data center, thousands of machines inside of it. That's the new computer. So we have to reinvent everything in computing from scratch for this new computer. That's how we were thinking of the world. So for us, it was like, wow, it's like being born in the 60s and someone just discovered a computer and it's like free field. Let's go all out. We can reinvent everything. And we started doing a lot of research. So I think the mindset helped us a lot, which was this new computer that just got invented, the data center. What's what, you know, it's a, it's a brave new world. Let's build all the software on top of it. And that helped us a lot. Uh, so it was very like kind of free spirited thinking of you can do anything on this new computer. I mean, one thing that I think is so interesting about this point in your life is that you and everyone that you were working with are clearly straight up geniuses, but you were amongst the first people to think about how to make it really easy to work with very large data sets, particularly for folks who didn't have the skill set to do it any other way. Why did you approach it that way? How did you even have the empathy to approach it that way? Well, we always saw that, you know, that you have to make this stuff simple if you want to reach broad masses. I mean, we actually wanted to democratize the technology, not as, through a company. As hippies, we just wanted the software to be picked up, right, and change the world. Uh, but if you want everyone to use it, it can't be that you need to have a PhD uh, to figure this stuff out. So we wanted to simplify it. So that was absolutely one of the original things. And we looked at the existing stuff and was like, hey, this is too complicated. And I would also credit my uh, CTO and co-founder, Matei, was also always of the, hey, we can make it simpler. Let's just make this simpler. So there was definitely a drive to make everything simpler and easier to use uh, constantly. And honestly, now looking back, I think we didn't do even enough of it. Because once we really started working with enterprises at Databricks, we realized, oh, actually, it's not that they don't have a PhD. It's like, we're talking about a completely different type of a user. Right. So this stuff has to be orders of magnitude simpler than it has been in the past. So that was really, I think it was the fact that we wanted to democratize and bring it into the hands of many. We were already seeing at that time people using similar technology at Google and Facebook and Twitter. That was kind of the inspiration. We're like, wow, these guys are so ahead. And the rest of the companies are not even close. Like they're far, far, far away. 
So we wanted to bridge that gap. And that's what we wanted to do with open source. Uh, we didn't quite get all the way there. That's actually what prompted us to start a company eventually, because we said we, we're not going to be able to pull this off from Berkeley unless we actually have a company behind it. Mm -hmm. And I want to get into that, those very early days of starting a company, because it's you didn't set out to start a company. You were working on this, on Apache Spark and building it. And you actually said that, that you all were trying very hard to get companies to, to engage with the software and, and that there would be conversations like, just take the software for free. And they'd say, no, we have to pay you a million dollars, which most entrepreneurs do not have that experience. So I found it hilarious. Can you talk to us about sort of the mental leap that you all took from, okay, this is an academic exercise to now we're going to commercialize this technology. Will you talk to us about that, that transition that, that you and your team underwent? Yeah, I think it probably was different for each of us. For me, it was difficult because I felt like I'm going over to the dark side. You know, it's all businesses are all about making money and we're researchers. We want to change the world. So it was difficult for me. So of the you know six, seven co-founders, I was the one that said, hey, I'm going to do this part time. I'll be part time at Berkeley. I'll do part time the startup thing. I, I don't know. I don't feel I want to. My heart is still, you know, change the world with, with research. But but then I realized, wow, they're hiring every person out of the lab. There's no one left here. So there's nothing left at Berkeley. So I might as well just go if I want to work with the same group. I pretty much have to join the full time. So and then I ended up joining it full time. So the journey was probably different for the different co-founders, but really it came from a place of nobody's going to pick up our research and actually go all, really grok it and understand it. If we want to change the world, we have to do it ourselves. And there has to be a company behind it. People were seeing us as just, this is just an academic exercise. Like it's not really companies can't use it. I think one of the comments was, yeah, so you have these smart students working on this. But they graduate in four years and then they're going to go somewhere else. Then what happens with the software? We're going to be left supporting this stuff. So part of the, hey, we don't want your free software. We want to give you a million dollars. wasn't like we want to give you money. It was kind of like, hey, there needs to be a throat to choke. There needs to be a contract here. And someone needs to take on the liability of supporting this thing over the next many decades. So I need an institution behind the software. I can't just, you know, you, you, seem, you seem like a you know, smart person, but you're going to wander off and do the next thing in two years. And, you know, that's not acceptable for us. So we kind of saw it as a necessity. And then Ben Horowitz kind of the, you know, the VC, he kind of egged us on and said, this is not going to happen with you without you guys. You got to get all in. You got to do it. Like, so he's kind of the one that pushed us. Cause initially we said, we'll just take two, $300,000 and we'll just work our butts off for two years. And then we'll figure out if we want to raise a big round or not. And Ben came along and said, uh, no, do your series A now, you know, and we kind of didn't want to, uh, we, we thought he's not a programmer. What does he know? He's, he doesn't code. Uh, but he made us an offer we couldn't refuse. And I think it was the right thing. So uh, we were off to the start, you know, to mm -hmm. do a good start with $14 million of funding uh, from mm -hmm. the get And so Ben Horowitz is co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, very, very famous venture capitalist, and, and put the first capital into Databricks. And, but Ali, the first couple of years, it wasn't clear that Databricks was going to be a home run. It's sort of funny looking at it now because Databricks is on such an amazing trajectory, but there was some, some wobbling right out of the gate. And can you talk about, can you talk about that time period in the company's history? Yeah, look, it's 2013. We started a company. Spark was created 2009, 13, we created a company. So all the way 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, we're struggling trying to get this, the whole world to adopt this technology. 
it has a group of enthusiastic people that are downloading and using it, but it's not a worldwide phenomenon. It's not taking over the whole world. And at that time, there's a, the incumbent technology was called Hadoop and everybody loved that. So we were on a mission of, can we replace that and make it much simpler with this part thing? And we were failing. I mean, we were not having uh, the success we wanted all those years. Uh, so we were just working hard trying to do that. And it took us six, so six years into the project 2015, finally something happened and it was almost like overnight it became the hottest thing ever. That year, Gartner put it in the top of their hype cycle and everybody, all these Hadoop vendors, everyone said, oh, we love Spark, this is amazing. And, but then they all said, hey, but we are the Spark company. We are the enterprise version of Spark. Or we actually, you know, and IBM did this thing called Spark Technology Center with 2,500 people. And they said, we're gonna train a million data scientists. Uh, so I remember going to a prospective customer in New York in 2015, six years after we started Spark. And there was this guy and he said, yeah, so who are you guys and what do you do? And he said, Spark. I said, yeah, Spark, I know that. IBM created that last year. It's great stuff, you know? And uh, so then suddenly the race was on that. How do you actually monetize this? And how do you actually become a, a sustainable company that can continue building uh, a business that can stand on its own feet? So that was the game changed suddenly overnight. So 2015, it was all about, can we get people to listen to us and take the Spark? And then finally we succeeded and everybody picked up Spark, but then suddenly they were like, well, but you're not Spark, it's IBM or it's Cloudera or these guys or that guy, we're going here and it's like, and, and there's so much noise around it and we're getting drowned in that. And we, you know, we're 70 people, almost no revenue, like $1 million. And the joke at the board was that the local restaurant makes more revenue than you. And so Ali, there was a, there was a pretty dramatic moment where the company was running out of money. And, um, and you all kind of were able to, to get an emergency infusion of cash. I think it was about $30 million. And as a condition of that, um, of that round of funding, you were swapped in as CEO. And that was a little bit of a controversial decision because the, and the founding CEO was also a professor. And so there was some kind of thinking like, do we need a professional CEO? You know, somebody who's done this before. And again, Ben Horowitz, who does not throw compliments around, says that you are the best CEO in Andreessen's, Andreessen Horowitz's portfolio of hundreds of companies. So what was a controversial decision at that point in time has been proven to be one of their best calls. And you didn't put yourself into the narrative when you were describing, you know, this inflection point for Databricks. So I wanted to double down on it. Why are you so effective? You were part of the reason why the company really was able to turn it on. What, what did you do differently? What were your top priorities and how did you execute on them? Well, let me start by saying a few things. One is I had no idea what CEO job is and I wasn't an effective CEO when I became CEO. Like I had no idea what the job is. I think I spent a month just reading as much as I could. And I talked to my cousin who also had started the company in New York. And I asked him, hey, what's that job going to be like? And he said, hey, you're basically a sales guy. And it's like the worst thing he could have told me. Uh, and I said, why do you say that? And he said, well, you're selling to your employees division. You're selling to the investors. You're selling to the customers. You're selling to the market. It's sales. And I was like, what am I getting into? Do I really want to do this? So, you know, I had no idea what the job was going to be. And, um, but I kind of back to the original thing, I had nothing to lose. And a company had nothing to lose. So you could take a big, you know, a swing for the fence and just take big risk here. And January, when I took over 2016, I kind of made three pretty big, bold bets. Again, I had nothing to lose. 
So kind of double down on enterprise sales, which was unclear because back then everybody wanted this kind of people come swipe their credit cards and use your software. But I said, no, we're going to go get these enterprise sales people and they're going to help us. So really double down on that much more than we had done before. Uh, changed the open source strategy to actually build more proprietary software. So we had something that we could sell uh, and then actually built up a new executive team. We were largely kind of academic and we were running like a little bit like a research lab. And I kind of changed that around and br brought in the pros in some sense. And I think that helped. If you're saying what made you so effective or why was it such a good bet to pick you and not the professional CEO? I don't think it has anything to do with me, actually. I think, I think most boards have two choices when the company is not doing well. And unfortunately, I think they pick one over the other, which I think is a mistake. Ben made the right choice, which is, do you optimize for the short term or for the long term? In the short term, if you just want to get more revenue out of this business and get it back on its legs, probably you're better off to get a professional sales or marketing oriented CEO who has done this many times before. They'll come in, they'll figure out how to get the numbers to look better and they'll optimize it. And that's actually probably great for the short term. But if you actually want to completely change the world, you probably need the visionary person who came up with the technology, right? That's why the Steve Jobs of the world and whoever they are, whether it's, you know, uh, you, you know, um, it could be anyone from Larry Ellison to Mark Zuckerberg, whoever, but they kind of have this vision and they understand what they want to try to do long-term. Those are the people you want if you want to bet on the long-term. So Ben bet long-term. Then the question, of course, is are we going to survive in the short-term, which we luckily did. And I learned on the job. I don't know how many times I heard this phrase, you know, first-time CEO and, you know, you're a first-time CEO and, you know, I mean, you know, it's okay. You don't, it was kind of like implicit. You don't know what you're doing. This is your first time. It's okay. You know, so that gave me another chip on my shoulder, which is great. So, you know, you had more to prove. Okay, I want to talk more about Databricks today. And part of the magic of Databricks is that you all are helping companies that we wouldn't traditionally think of necessarily as tech companies to leverage AI to become disruptors and to innovate. Can you give us a quick lesson on data lake houses and the Databricks approach? Yeah, I mean, let me just tell you, like the, the world is kind of facing, there is in this phase shift right now where Every industry has these companies in it that have been around for a long time. They either will figure this technology out or they're going to be disrupted. So to give you an example, Uber, is it a transportation company? Is it a tech company? They, with an app and machine learning and AI and data, completely disrupted the whole cab industry and medallion industry, right? Same thing with Airbnb, same thing with Netflix, same thing with Amazon.com. Are these, you know, is it a retail store Amazon, you know? Uh, is Airbnb a hotel, you know, and this, this is a, you can apply this to every, and this is going to continue happening in every industry, right? This is kind of when Mark Andreessen says software is going to eat the world. Um, so uh, that's happening. And these disruptors are all Silicon Valley, typically companies started here in Silicon Valley or somewhere else, but they often move out here like Facebook did and they disrupt that whole industry. So the big question facing the world right now is, is that going to happen to every company that's around or are the existing companies going to figure it out? and actually get ahead and, and get ahead of this technology. Our bet is we're gonna help them. We're gonna help these millions and millions of companies that already exist. We're not here to necessarily help Facebook. We're here to help the existing companies that are around. They have a bunch of advantages on their side. They actually have a lot of data they've collected. They really wanna figure this stuff out. They have great customers. They've been in the business for a long time. We wanna enable them with the technology. So what we're trying to do with the Lake House, as you asked, is we wanna give them one data platform that works for the whole organization. If they don't use our lake house today, they'll have to buy lots of different software from different vendors, stitch it together and do a bunch of stuff themselves. 
and you have to have to buy a data warehouse platform if they want to do you know ask questions about their business about the past like what's my revenue last month if they want to do prediction into the future they have to buy another separate stack if they want to do real-time processing of data they have to buy a separate stack so there's a lot of complicated things they have to stitch together and even then they don't really have what the ubers of the world have built in-house with their thousands of thousands of engineers phds and paying silicon valley wages so for us it's how do we build what those folks have and offer it to all these enterprises and the lake house is one platform for every department in your organization data scientists data engineers analysts we want every department to be able to use this and become data driven and use artificial intelligence strategically for their business so that they can build their future and not get disrupted by some startup here in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And you actually did an interview a few years ago and you riffed off of Mark Andreessen's favorite quote. You said software is eating the world and AI will eat software. What do you foresee the world looking like when nearly every major company is leveraging AI possibly through Databricks? Yeah, I mean, so, so let me first explain like, so Mark's, sorry for like, you probably already all understand Mark saying software eating the world, but it's all these industries and all these things where you don't expect, like a watch has nothing to do with software. Well, now it is in your Apple watch, right? Your car, it's an old industry with like, you know, it's, it's all manufacturing. Nope, now you have Tesla and it's all software, right? Okay, but how you set the temperature in your house has nothing to do with, no, nope, now there's Nest and it's like smart and it has AI and machinery. So, Software is sort of creeping in everywhere in your house, right? Everywhere in your life, in, you know, in our businesses. Uh, and my point is the software today is dumb though, in the sense that there's a lot of manual things you have to do to it. It's us having to configure it, set things, copy things. So uh, what I think you should all think about is every time you interact with tech, everything you do with tech, how intelligent is the thing you're doing? Could it be automated? Because I bet you most of the things that are happening today can actually be automated. And that's what I mean with AI will eat all software. Any software you interact with and what it's asking you to do, click on it or do anything it's asking you to do, could it have done it itself and figured it out? It's pretty repetitive. It doesn't actually require, you know, lots and lots of IQ points to figure out you need to turn something on or ask it to do something. It can probably be automated. That's what's going to happen in the next 10, 20 years, whether we like it or not. Software is going to become much more intelligent. It's going to leverage AI. And data and that's a next revolution that we're going to go through and it's happening actually already in front of us but you know we might not see it or we might not be aware of it so hence the saying uh, ai will eat all of software mm -hmm. and ali i have a few more questions for you but just given this line of commentary i want to interject one from our alum jordan who is asking about your thoughts regarding ai and the job market he said, with the introduction of GitHub Copilot, it seems AI is increasingly competing with humans for more technical jobs. Yeah, I actually think technology replaced a lot of blue collar jobs early on, right? I actually think AI is actually going for a lot of white collar jobs, to be honest with you, right? If you think about it, right? When I say the things you are doing with software, I'm not talking about, you know, a car mechanic. I'm talking about us. Uh, so I do think AI will actually creep into our workspaces and we should pay attention to it. There's a lot they can do. I do think the question asked about GPT-3, for instance, and so on, there has been massive breakthroughs in the last two, three years around what we can do around language, understanding language and doing things with language. That was one of the barriers that people thought you probably, that's an area where, you know, humans are going to be far superior speaking, having this conversation, you and me right now, Bethany, like that could not be replaced by, well, in the last two, three years, the computer's gone pretty darn good at understanding language. Uh, I think we're at the cusp of breaking the Turing test, which is 
you can't any longer know if you're talking to a computer or a human if you ask it questions. I think we're already there kind of, but it hasn't been announced big time. Uh, so I do think it's going to have a huge impact. Does that mean all of our jobs are going to go away? No, I think they're going to change. And the most mundane, boring parts of your job uh, are going to be replaced and be automated. And what does that mean in the long run? Does it mean like all of our jobs go away? And what happens to the rest of humanity? I think it's just good uh, in the sense that AI, if the question is, is AI, you know, is that, is that going to be bad for us? Is it bad for society? Is it, what's going to happen with all the jobs? Are people going to go, you know, be unemployed? I think of it this way. AI at its fundamentals doesn't actually hurt any of the fundamental things we need in life. We need education. You know, we need food. You know, we need health care. We need a place to live, right? Uh, those basic uh, things that we need, AI actually can improve all of them. It can actually make them, you know, it can democratize education. It can help with healthcare and so on and so forth, right? So at its, in a fundamental way, it's good. Now, if it replaces all these jobs, that means it can actually do a lot of the production automatically. So that's a lot of production value for society. Now, how do we distribute that? That's a different question. We could distribute it all to one person and say, this person you know, gets all the riches from it. And then that's bad for the rest of the folks, or we can more evenly distribute it. That's a political question. That's more of a wealth distribution question that technically doesn't directly have anything to do with the innovation in tech, which will continue. So that's how I think about it. There are some places where you can use AI in a really bad way, like weapon industry and so on. And we should think about that and re regulate it. There's also privacy issues. So I think, you know, regulation can help with those things. But as a whole, I think it's good for humanity. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ali. So you and the Databricks team recently raised a billion dollars of funding. And there was actually so much interest in that round that you could have raised up to $3 billion, but you kind of cut it off. Can you talk to us about what that experience was like and also how you're thinking about leveraging the round to grow your business? Yeah, I mean, it's totally, for, for a person like me who was there from the beginning, it's surreal because we had to work so hard. That, that year, 2015, we said we wobbled. We wobbled from March till November in 2015, trying to raise money. 2015, when we tried to raise money, this is 30 million that you mentioned, they initially said we're positive and they wanted to do that. But then suddenly they all like kind of got cold on us. I think they realized the company's, you know, wobbling, as you said. And suddenly there was like, oh, we love you guys, but hey, can we talk next week? I might have news for you then. And the next week, oh, I'm on vacation this week. And then next week, oh, you know, not returning. To so suddenly like they all just went cold on us. And it was so hard and it was so many questions you had to ask, answer and the due diligence and analyzing the data rooms. It was like raising, you know, I think I, when I took over as CEO in 2016, I added another 10 million. I had to fly to places and work really, really hard to get that money, um, which I understand $10 million is a lot of money. But comparing that with the ease of raising a billion dollars, like how simple that was and how little, I mean, to be honest, the due diligence done there compared to when we were a series A or B or C company and you know, stakes were lower and it was less money, it's mind boggling. I mean, it is shocking when you see it, but I think the business is more proven and they're like, look at the numbers and they understand, they do their research and they're, they're less sort of grilling you. Uh, so by far the billion dollars I raised was the easiest money I've ever raised in my life. It's like nothing, you know, comes close to it. <laughs> that, that was the easiest experience raising a billion dollars. And you've talked about, you know, in this journey, the ups and downs and, um, and, and your, like your stamina and your resilience to push past those tough moments. As you look back on it, what, what was the biggest challenge that you had to push through? Or what were the, the top couple that, that come to mind for you? 
Yeah, that's a great question. When you first come to the job, it's it's hard to um, the difficult decisions around people, you know, changes you have to make if someone is not doing their job or you need to make a change there. Those are the hardest one. If you, for me, this was my first job outside of research. I have never managed anyone before that. So not only are you managing people, now you have to fire people and replace them and have those tough conversations. So that was probably the hardest thing uh, for me uh, to prepare those conversations and go into them. And, you know, you know, sometimes you see people crying and they, you know, they're like really, you know, and it's, it's, that's difficult. I think that's difficult for any of us, but I did it, you know, when I had to do it, I had inherited a management team. Then you hire your own managers. Now you hire the people that you do want to work with and you think you've done a great choice. And sometimes you have to make changes there too later on. And that's particularly hard because now it's actually someone that you hired and you sold them and you tell them, told them, let go of your existing job and take this risk and come here and you're going to change the world. And you're going to be so well off here. It's going to be amazing. Just trust me. And they come in here, right? And they're like working for you and they gave up everything in their life and you're their boss. And then three years later, you have to kind of sit them down and say, hey, you know, I got some bad news for you. So I would say those are the hardest. And as a result, you think about them, you agonize about them and uh, you don't make those decisions as fast, which as a result means the person suffers more because by the point, at that time when you have that conversation with them, they've already been failing at their job for quite a while. And so you've let it sort of, a little bit ruin their self-confidence and their work because you didn't deal with it early enough uh, and, uh, and the whole business is suffering. Uh, so I wish if I could go back, uh, make those calls quicker and just be, you know, be more honest about it on a front, uh, you know, to be also a little bit self-critical. I think what happens is when you push the can down the road and you don't have that difficult conversation, inside you're instead upset, right? Of why are they not delivering? I'm so disappointed. And it's hard to hide that. So then that shows in your relationship with the person and you're kind of torturing them at their job. You're becoming a bad boss. It's better if you can actually figure out a way where you can part ways amicably uh, rather than making them feel really, really bad. And then at the end, a year or two later after torturing them saying, okay, this isn't working. So I would just, I would do that a little bit differently if I could do it again. The, those kind of things I think are the, the hardest. Mm-hmm. One of my mentors says that when when someone departs a company, it tends to be a relief for everybody. But for some reason, it's hard for us to get to that point where we can let it go. Pallavi has a question. Could you share your thoughts on what skills an entry to mid-level data scientists should focus on right now since the field is evolving so quickly? Yeah, I don't have a great answer to that. I just think, you know, you have to learn the basics. You have to get the statistics and the computer science. So, you know, it's the combination of those two fields. You have to understand those really, really well. Um, Depending on what you're buying for, I think also domain knowledge is important. So if you focus on a vertical that you think is going to be very successful and get into that, right? So yes, you have to have the stats and you have to have the computing skills, but it's also very different to do cancer genomics um, using AI uh, than being in manufacturing at John Deere and trying to figure out how you can improve crop efficiency using AI. Those are two examples of what c- companies do with us. So maybe also getting into the, to a vertical that you're excited about and learning more about that. And that, that way you'll have a competitive advantage. There's lots of data scientists out there, but how many of them understand the cancer genomics or the crop efficiency in the case of you know, John Deere? So uh, that, that way you can differentiate yourself because uh, with my UC Berkeley hat on, uh, I mean, every student that comes in wants to do AI and data science and machine learning. So there's gonna be a lot of people that are gonna know this stuff. And we're educating a ton of them in every university around the planet. 
Uh, so for you, you want to be differentiated, right? You don't want to do just what everybody else is doing. Uh, so I think it's good to think about it that way and pick a vertical that's an industry that you think is up and coming and you're excited about. Mm-hmm. And Ali, you've talked about at different moments in the company's life cycle, sort of hiring for brilliance and then hiring for experience. You've just talked about differentiating yourself through domain expertise. Anna has a question, which is what else are you looking for in new hires? You know, when you're evaluating someone as a possible fit for your team, what's top of mind for you? Yeah, look, so our culture principles are we want people, I mean, so there's culture is important for us. So the culture of Databricks, right? So uh, one, we want people that are teamwork oriented because the company is a team sport. I know it's cliche, but some people are really, really brilliant. They're amazing. They're phenomenal. They're better than everybody else, but they're just really toxic to work with. And it's all about them. And it kind of demotivates the team around them. And then as a result, you get worse team results. So uh, we try to avoid that, uh, you know, as much as possible. So that's behavioral. Um, we try to focus on people that are data-driven and have data kind of, um, you know, um, they're sort of able to work with data and understand data and, you know, um, not so much the folks that are like, hey, I, I go on gut feeling and I make decisions on gut feeling. We're, we're a data company. So that's the second thing that's important for us. Three, we're looking for people that take ownership. We want co-founders. We don't want just employees. We want people here that can take, take on the whole company and solve the problems end to end. It's a startup. So things aren't perfect. Everything isn't figured out. And we're kind of like teenagers, like we're going to grow up and we're going to change a lot. Uh, so help us figure out who we want to be. Uh, so that's a uh, third thing. And, you know, fourth, we want people that are focused on customers and helping those companies that we want to help those enterprises. So we look for that as well. And then finally, we do look for people that can raise the bar. So that could be in many different things. They have seen something special in their life or done special, been in a great place or done. There has to be something kind of special about them when we look at their CV. Uh, and then finally, like advice for folks here, we try to avoid job hoppers, people that just sw switch jobs too often. So that's something to think about. If, if you're switching jobs often, you know, at Databricks, because we're building for the future, we don't want someone to come join us for two years. We want them to come in here and feel like they, they're co-founders of this business and will build this business with us for many years to come. Maybe not 10 years, but certainly not one or two years. Uh, so we have an issue with people that have very short stints on the CV. Uh, they have great reasons. We try to understand them and be, you know, show empathy, but, uh, but oftentimes I, I like the people that sort of, you know, uh, showed stamina uh, in, in their career. And I love people that did their own startups, even if they failed, because they realized how hard it is and they had to do, they had to be jack of all trades and do a lot of things. I really like those profiles, especially people that have done a startup and been, been in a big company. So they've seen both sides. I love those profiles. They end up usually working better. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Ali. And um, Ben has a question. He's a veteran and he says, what is your top concern about integrating AI into the defense industry? And how would you mitigate that concern? It's a great question. I don't think I have any great answers uh, uh, to that. Uh, and I think it's largely already happening today. So frankly speaking, I, I actually don't know enough about those use cases, you know, that, you know, and I'm actually not, a lot of that is confidential, so I don't get to see it. Uh, so I'm not privy to it. But I do think there are areas where we should, as humanity, pay attention to how AI is being used. Like, you know, uh, the, you know, defense industry is one of them, I think, you know, or how, how we're using uh, AI there is important and how we're dealing with it on privacy issues. And I do think regulation will be needed on all of these fronts. You know, the defense one is difficult because, you know, there's, I guess there's not great international regulation in general. Uh, so it's kind of up to the nation states what they want to do. 
Mm-hmm. Sorry, no great question. Great question, but no great answer there. Ben gave you the thumbs up. Zane has a question. He um, he said he's fascinated by the academic background of your team of co-founders, and he's wondering if some of the elements of the culture that you just described are directly shaped by the academic origins of your company. I was wondering about this too, because you said in the early days you ran it like a research lab. Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. I do think it had had huge influence on the business. And I think there's a lot of the cultural elements that are actually directly related to research. And I think a lot of the things that we did in research helps us actually run companies better. Doesn't mean everybody has to go do research, but I think it's, uh, it means you can do it. So what are those things? One, I think we were pretty truth seeking as academics. We weren't trying to market or make things up or, you know, we were trying to seek the truth and push the boundaries of information and knowledge. And I think that's helpful in a business because you know, there's whole promotions and who presents what information to who and so on. It's like, you know, the truth can get sacrificed in big organizations as they get more political, which more politics creeps into every organization as they become bigger and bigger. So having that truth seeking element that we had as uh, academics, I think it helps us kind of break some of those barriers and some of those walls between the different departments, you know, engineering, not getting along with sales and so on. Try to break that and just say, hey, we're just truth seeking here. And we're just trying to find out what the truth is. We don't care what barriers or what interests different groups have. That helped us. I think you become pretty pedagogic in academia. You get good at uh, didactics because you have to explain to students and you have to convince the hardest group to convince in society, which is skeptical researchers who think, I don't think these research results are correct, or I don't think, I don't prove to me that this is correct. So you get good at actually marketing. uh, And I think, so that helped us, I think, you know, try to market our ideas to, you know, customers and, and everyone else. So I think those two things really, really helped us. And then of course the innovation, because it was a research lab. So innovation is sort of part of the DNA. So I think those are some of the advantages. Uh, there are also disadvantages, you know, it's in academia, there is no, you're, you're not trying to get a thousand people to all row in the same direction and align. And you're not also trying to get a thousand, 2000 people from different backgrounds to work together. They're all the same kind of, they're all these PhD folks, you know, like super geeky that are trying to do, that's not the case. My sales department is very different from my marketing department, from my engineering department, from my legal department and so on, uh, HR department. So now you have to get all those people to work together and, you know, be excited and inspired by the company. So those are the kind of things you don't get for free. It's much more individualistic, the research you do. It's like sort of an individual and what they're doing and, uh, trying to break grounds for the research. So uh, so there's some of the pros and some of the cons, but definitely it influenced us in a big way. Ali, when we started this conversation, you were talking about one of the benefits of being at Berkeley was this sort of like blue sky thinking. And in the, in the example you gave, sort of interplanetary thinking. But in a company's early days, especially when resources are so tight, there can be a tension between that big vision and then the focus needed to execute. Did you all feel that tension at various points along the way or no? Yeah, it changes. So in the very, very early days, you basically don't have any customers or any revenue. So you kind of think you're doing really, really well, actually. So you're kind of running around and you say, hey, we're going to change the world this way. And it's going to be completely different. And, you know, and there's, you don't have to really prove it. And you build a bunch of stuff and you show it to people and you, you drink your own Kool-Aid. Uh, you know, there's no real ground there's no revenue to sort of hold your feet to the uh, fire but you're trying to figure out if you can get this product market fit which is the only thing that matters in the first few years once you have product market fit and you start selling the software 
that's when this uh, tension that you mentioned comes up. Now it's really hard to figure out, you know, how do I get the next, like, how do I grow this business? And that's when you start focusing. And that's when you kind of give up some of these ideals of like, hey, let's change, let's do whatever we want. And it's like, no, 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 look, we have this many months of salary that we can pay to people left. That's our runway. And we have to get the revenue to get to this stage. If we don't hit this milestones, I'm not gonna be able to get more money. And then I can't pay your salaries. So that that now all of that visionary stuff goes out of, out the window, and you feel the pressure and the short term uh, sort of time ticking. Uh, but then you reach our stage now, where you raise a billion dollars. Now you have like the same kind of Berkeley hippies who want to change the world, and you funded them with billions of dollars. So uh, so then you're kind of it's it's even better than the early days, in my opinion. So I like this stage. Um, we have a question, a couple of questions around who inspires you. And I think that this is so interesting because you clearly inspire all of us and you've had these incredible stages in your life and your career. Who inspires you today? And is that the same set of people who inspired you maybe 10 years ago? And how do you tap into them? Are these books? Are they blogs? Are they podcasts? So in terms of individuals, I never actually found anyone that sort of, I, I might be impressed by something someone did, but I never had sort of a role model or someone that I was super inspired by other than my mother. <laughs> and maybe that's cliche. A lot of people say those kind of things, but, you know, as immigrants, you know, having to sort of, they didn't approve any of her education. She had to redo college from scratch, get, you know, uh, you know, get a dentist degree again, build her own practice, raise the money, and then eventually I kind of get up on her feet. Uh, and she worked extremely hard all those years. So that's my inspiration. I always look back and saying, hey, you know, she worked way harder uh, than I did and she had nothing. And, you know, so, you know, that's kind of like the, and she did it late all the way up until her sixties and seventies. So I have much more runway. So that's kind of on the role model side, but I do think there are a lot of amazing books you can read. And I do think that uh, there's, that's one of the secrets of how I did this job. I, I read a lot of books uh, on different aspects. Every, every part of the, every problem I was trying to solve at any given time, I read a lot of books. The other thing I did is I tried to actually find people that were, that people considered really great at that. So if I was trying to head, hire a head of marketing, I try to find the best marketing people and talk to them. Just get them on the phone or just have dinner with them and just pick their brains. Uh, so those two things, like learning as fast as you human, humanly can on the job, I definitely did that. So books and then the people that are doing it and you start pattern matching after a while. So um, that way you can kind of get up to speed quite a bit fast. So if you work hard on reading and meeting the people and picking their brains and listening carefully and then pattern matching of what you're seeing, it's really not rocket science. I think the part that's hard about this job is there is no, you can't go to school and they teach you how to do this job. So there is no training for it. And there's no one book you should read and that one book is everything you need. That's the hard part about it. The good part is that it's honestly not rocket science. You know, if you have common sense and if you read the books and you talk to the right folks, you can get to the state of the art quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you can use common sense and a little bit of luck. You can get pretty far. Mm -hmm. We talked about how Ben Horowitz was your first investor. Did you read his book, The Hard Thing About yeah. Hard Things? Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of Ben's. Uh, I read his books. Uh, they're, they're amazing. You know, it's, uh, Ben is an organizational genius. You know, even today, you can... If you call them up and say, hey, I have this really complicated problem. These people don't want to do this and they hate those people. And then there's this and that. And how would we solve it? And this person will quit if this doesn't happen, but this will blow up the whole thing. He loves that, right? So, ah, okay. Here's what I would do. I would do these four things. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. He's very, very good at that. And you can, if you read his books, um, 
uh, you can you can get a lot of that. Ali, Ali, he sounds like he's he's maybe a member of your brain trust. Are there other leaders in tech or elsewhere who you tap into? Uh, I'm in favor, sure. Uh, <laughs> definitely a go-to person. Uh, brain, I, think. I like to pick lots of people's brain in general and form my own opinion. I might not do it all what they recommend, but just get as many data points as possible and see how others have done it. And then use your own common sense. Don't do what they're saying or do what they are thinking. Just mm -hmm. use your own first principled reasoning and pattern match and do it your way. Uh, but, uh, but Ben is very good at this stuff. Mm -hmm. I really recommend The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I think it's better than his other book is also really awesome, but Hard Thing of Hard Things has a lot of good nuggets in it. Mm -hmm. So you're over 10 years into this journey of building Databricks. What do the next 10 years look like for you and your team? Well, it's really hard to answer that because I had no idea what this first 10 years would look like. So it's really, really hard to look into the future. But what I hope to do is make sure that we're setting up the company as an institution for success. So before it was a lot about what are the smart things we need to do? How do we help these companies? How do we change the world? How do we, and we were cerebrally active thinking about what we should be doing. Whereas I think in the next 10 years, the idea is how do you build the company so that it itself continues to do the right things without me in it, without any of us original folks in there uh, so that it can continue uh, being super successful and innovating and helping these organizations. So that, that's the thing. So your mind sort of shifts uh you know from you know the example i give is like you know if there's you know if, if there's litter in the kitchen in the early days like well you should be an owner you should go pick it up and clean it up and now it's more like wait a minute don't clean it up uh don't clean the kitchen let's figure out what processes we needed in place for this problem to fix itself so instead of having heroes uh let's figure out how the company can actually itself avoid these problems and in some sense more important to build the factory than the artifacts that come out of the factory. That's kind of the, the that shifts in your mindset uh, at this scale. Ali, it's been such a treat to spend the last hour with you. Thank you so much for carving out the time. And on behalf of the Breakline community, we're just wishing you and your team all the best as you continue building Databricks. Thanks so much, Bethany. Awesome questions. And I love this audience in particular. So thank you for having me. Thanks again, Ali. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode in the Breakline Arena. We hope that you're walking away feeling a little inspired, a little bit moved, and feeling as if you learned something. I'll tell you what, if you enjoy what you heard today, we only need you to do one of three things. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe, and if it really touched your spirit, go on review and rate this episode it would mean a lot to us it helps us get the word out there um it helps us continue to share this great content uh and most importantly we just love to hear what you what you'd have to say about uh some of the content that we're putting out there so um please join us again here in the breakline arena once again my name is kenny vaughn and i am signing out from the breakline hq with my partner in crime Sophia Bodwin, we will see you guys next week.